Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. PT-41 of Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3 pulled into the Philippine port of Cagayan on the island of Mindanao. Standing on the deck of the boat was General Douglas MacArthur, grim-faced and soaked to the bone. The commander of the guard assembled to meet the general, Colonel William Morse, remarked that it reminded him of the painting of General Washington crossing the Delaware. MacArthur, his wife Jean, and four-year-old son Arthur disembarked with the five other Army and Navy officers that were passengers on the boat. The general then turned to the commander of the torpedo boat squadron, a black-haired, bristly-bearded, green-eyed man wearing a black oil coat, armed with two pistols and a knife stuck in his belt, almost indistinguishable as U.S. naval officer. Buckley, you've taken me out of the jaws of death, and I'll never forget it, the general said to him. Lieutenant John Buckley's assignment was complete. His PT boats had safely delivered General MacArthur, his family, and 16 officers of his staff from the Philippine island fortress of Corregidor across 580 miles of ocean to Mindanao, the southernmost island of the archipelago. With this act of daring, John Buckley and the commanders and crews of MTB-3 ensured that General Douglas MacArthur would be given an opportunity so rare in this life, another chance. This month's podcast analyzes another of the many controversial chapters in the life story of General of the Army, Douglas MacArthur. Join us as we examine General MacArthur's PT boat escape from the doomed garrison on Cregador in March 1942. The end was looming in the Philippines, though by mid-February 1942, Douglas MacArthur's American and Filipino forces of the United States Army Forces Far East Command had fought the Japanese to a standstill on Bataan and Cregador. The British bastion at Singapore had fallen to the Tiger of Malaya, Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita, thus freeing up Japanese air and naval forces to be brought to bear against the Allied defenders in the Philippines. In addition, reinforcements for Lieutenant General Masaharu Homa's Philippine Expeditionary Force were free to pour into the archipelago as Japan had control of the sea lanes and air supremacy. The defenders of Bataan and Corregidor had only hopes, dreams, and endless rumors to believe in. MacArthur knew the noose was tightening around the Philippines, and he pleaded with Washington for aid. The U.S. Navy's defeat at Pearl Harbor, however, left it unable to lead a relief force to the Philippines. Washington's strategy was also Europe first. The Pacific was a secondary theater. Tons of supplies and material from America were on their way to Europe and Russia, while only a trickle of supplies was on its way to the Philippines. No help was coming. Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson wrote in his diary, There are times when men must die. MacArthur felt betrayed. Washington had told him help was coming. He had told his troops on Bataan the same thing and signed his name to a general order stating as much on January 15th. His men had believed him, and now it was a lie. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Secretary of War Stimson, and Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall had all come to the same conclusion. Doom was in the air. Throughout December 1941 and January 1942, their messages to the Philippines were that help was on the way, 
and that a base was being solidified in Australia for an effort to relieve the Philippines. By February, however, the messages to MacArthur began to focus on eventualities and what to do before the end came. American High Commissioner Francis B. Sayre, his family, and the U.S. Embassy staff had fled to Corregidor just prior to the fall of Manila, as had Philippine Commonwealth President Manuel Quezon and his family. Washington did not want them falling into Japanese hands and planned for their removal from the island fortress by submarine. General Marshall also advised that a further step be taken. MacArthur should consider having his family removed as they too were on Corregidor, undergoing all the rigors of the bombing and shelling. Plans were made for the evacuation of the government officials, but MacArthur informed Marshall that his wife and son would share the fate of the garrison. Both MacArthur and his wife grew up worshipping their immigrant, pioneer, warrior ancestors. Each had a very keen sense of history. As a boy, MacArthur lived down the street from the Alamo. Did the MacArthurs envision an Alamo-style death for themselves? Brigadier General Dwight D. Eisenhower, a former aide to MacArthur and then working for General Marshall on the problem of relief for the Philippines, confided as much to his diary, writing that the whole situation was suited to the general sense of the dramatic. Regardless, Washington was determined not to let Douglas MacArthur meet that destiny. Though Washington was following a strategy of Europe first, they needed a base for their strategic defensive and eventual counteroffensive in the Pacific. Australia was that base. Australia, however, had just lost two divisions at Singapore, and the rest of its forces were fighting with the British Eighth Army in North Africa against the German Africa Corps. The Japanese were now pressing hard down the island of New Guinea, which pointed like a dagger at the heart of Australia. Their parent state of Great Britain was under assault by the air legions of Germany and tied down in North Africa. No help was coming from them. The Australians, therefore, looked to the Americans for aid. With the fall of Singapore, the American, British, Dutch, Australian command in the Pacific was wavering, and the idea to create a new command with Douglas MacArthur as supreme commander was proposed. The United States was not going to let their most experienced commander be taken prisoner by the Japanese, and the Australians would see his presence as a signal of American commitment and a confidence builder to their morale. On 23 February 1942, President Roosevelt ordered General MacArthur to make arrangements to proceed to the island of Mindanao and then Australia. Douglas MacArthur and his chief of staff, Brigadier General Richard K. Sutherland, were in the headquarters lateral of Corregidor's Malinta Tunnel when a Signal Corps officer brought in President Roosevelt's order. Lieutenant Colonel Sidney Huff, MacArthur's aide, was there when the message arrived. He didn't know what it said, but noticed the general's face turned white. Clark Lee, an Associated Press reporter, also saw the general just after receiving the message. He said MacArthur looked old, drained, and gone was his usual air of confidence. MacArthur looked up from the message and said one thing. Where's Jean? MacArthur and Sutherland then left the Melinda Tunnel to find Jean at the nearby cottage that MacArthur stayed in. That night, MacArthur called a conference of his staff to discuss the situation. He said he was going to resign his commission and stay in the Philippines. His staff, however, convinced him that forces were awaiting his arrival in Australia, forces available for an immediate return to the Philippines. A review of the message traffic to and from the War Department since December led MacArthur to the same conclusion. The next day he radioed Washington that he would leave, but that his sudden departure would be such a blow to morale he must be allowed to choose the timing and mode of his own departure. MacArthur was instructed to take his family and chief of staff with him, 
and before the departure, Washington also ordered that Brigadier General Harold George, MacArthur's air officer, be evacuated as he was considered valuable to the continuing war effort. After the staff conference, however, Brigadier General Sutherland approached Colonel Huff with a list. It had the names of 16 officers and one enlisted man on it. MacArthur was taking the nucleus of his staff to Australia with him. He never informed Washington of this. When Washington ordered MacArthur out of the Philippines, they figured he would leave by submarine, as did the officers chosen to accompany the general. But MacArthur had his own plans. In his 24 February reply to the order of evacuation, he hinted he might be traveling to Mindanao by surface craft. From the beginning, MacArthur was considering using Buckley's torpedo boats to break through the Japanese naval blockade. Lieutenant John Buckley and MTB-3 made a name for themselves in the Philippine campaign of 1941-1942. Arriving in the Philippines in September 1941 with six boats, by February 1942 they were down to four. The 77-foot-long mahogany-bottom boats required an overhaul every few hundred hours to keep them in shape for ultimate performance, but there were no spare parts to be had. It was only by ingenuity and prayers that any of them were still running after constant action in the waters surrounding Corregidor and Bataan. Buckley had proven himself a hard fighter and just the type of person that appealed to MacArthur. The general felt if he had any chance of making it to Mindanao, it was Buckley and his PT boats that would get him there. On 28 February, MacArthur ordered Buckley and his PT boats to Corregidor for an inspection and ceremony. MacArthur, his wife, and a few officers boarded the PT-41 for a spin around Manila Bay. The general wanted his wife to get a feel for what it was like to ride a torpedo boat. She returned to Corregidor a bit queasy, but said she could take it. It was the first time Jean had met Buckley. She thought he looked like a pirate. MacArthur then awarded Buckley with the Distinguished Service Cross for his bravery and service. Buckley knew something was in the works. A few days earlier, 16th Naval District Commander Rear Admiral Francis W. Rockwell told him to keep his boats out of action for a while. That night, MacArthur had Buckley come to his cottage and disclosed that he had been ordered to Australia. He asked the lieutenant what he thought about his boats making a run from Corregidor to Mindanao, a distance equal to a trip from Buffalo to Chicago. Buckley and MacArthur were cut of the same cloth, and the naval officer's reply was confident. General, it'll be a piece of cake. MacArthur told Buckley to be ready at all times, but kept his cards close to his chest about the exact date and mode of departure. U.S. Army and Naval Commands in Australia put airplanes on notice to be able to fly to Mindanao for the ferry mission, and a submarine on station to be available if MacArthur might need it. MacArthur knew the rumor mill was churning, and until the last minute told no one exactly how he planned to leave. Over the next few weeks, the logistics of a run pipe PT boat were arranged. Buckley, Rockwell and Huff started working on the plan to get the boats from Corregidor to Mindanao by running only at night and hiding out during the day. Each boat would need to strap 10 to 20 extra 50-gallon drums of fuel to their decks to make the trip. The carbon buildup in the engines, after months of constant action, couldn't be dealt with. The boats would not be able to attain top speed, but Buckley and his sailors got them into the best running shape possible. Even MacArthur's wife helped out by secretly scrounging up four bags of rations, one for the passengers of each boat, because Buckley had advised MacArthur the boats would only have enough food for the crew. On March 9th, MacArthur called Buckley to Corregidor and told him they would be leaving on the 15th, the Ides of March, the anniversary of Caesar's murder. The next day a final plan was produced by Buckley. Four boats, 
The PTs 32, 34, 35, and 41 were going to make the run. They would run south at night to the Cuyo Islands group and lay up during the daylight hours. A U.S. submarine would be on station there for a pickup should one be necessary. Otherwise, the boats would continue on at night through the Visayan Islands to Cagayan, Mindanao. None of the PT boat commanders or sailors had ever crossed those seas before. On March 10th, MacArthur summoned First Corps Commander, Lieutenant General Jonathan Wainwright, to Corregidor from the fighting front on Bataan. They met in MacArthur's cottage. There, MacArthur told him that he had been ordered to Australia. MacArthur gave Wainwright command of Bataan and Corregidor, but stated he would maintain control of forces in the Philippines from Australia. MacArthur set up control this way so that in case Wainwright had to surrender, he would not have the authority to surrender forces on the other islands in the Philippines. Washington later overturned this setup, giving Wainwright full command in the Philippines. MacArthur also wanted to impart to Wainwright the reasons for his leaving, and stressed that he was doing it under orders and against his will. MacArthur was worried about his reputation. He knew the men on Bataan called him Dugout Doug, and it stung him deeply. The general wanted Wainwright to make it known to everyone that he was only going in order to lead a force back to the Philippines as quickly as possible. It didn't matter. Some on Bataan and Corregidor never forgave him. On the morning of the 11th of March, MacArthur ordered Buckley back to Corregidor and gave him the word. The escape was on for that night, and not the 15th. The escape party was notified and their pickup locations designated. MacArthur, Jean, Arthur, Sutherland, Huff, Naval Captain Harold Ray, Army Doctor Major Charles Morehouse, and the most controversial member of the escape party, Arthur's nanny, Achu, would board the PT-41 at Corregidor. Brigadier Generals Aiken, Casey, Marquette, George, and Yusefi's top codebreaker, Lieutenant Colonel Schur, met the PT-32 at the quarantine dock of Maraveles, Bataan. Colonels Diller, Willoughby, Wilson, and Sutherland's clerk, Master Sergeant Rogers, met the PT-35 at Sisiman Cove, Bataan, where the 34 boat was picking up Admiral Rockwell, Brigadier General Marshall, Colonel Stivers, and Captain McMicking. Buckley spread out the pickup spots as not to arouse suspicion especially from Japanese aircraft patrolling the skies. All would be escaping the fate that awaited the defenders of Bataan and Corregidor, but the odds of making it across the open sea through the Japanese blockade were not promising. At 7 p.m. on the evening of 11 March, the members of the escape party made their way to their designated pickup locations. Buckley's command boat, the PT-41, pulled up to the north dock of Corregidor at 7.20 p.m. with Ensign George Cox at the helm. The MacArthur's and their party showed up shortly after. General MacArthur shook hands with Lieutenant General Wainwright and the assembled officers. He was gaunt, thirty pounds underweight from the Corregidor diet, and filled with grief at leaving his command, knowing all the faces he was seeing had little, if any, chance. He boarded the boat, took one last look back, and raised his cap in farewell. The 41 boat then cast off and made its way through the minefield at the mouth of Manila Bay, where it joined the three other boats and began their journey into the unknown. The first night's journey was a nightmare for the passengers, as the seas were extremely rough. Nearly all of them were overcome with seasickness. The 62-year-old MacArthur and his son Arthur probably worse than the rest. MacArthur was in a state of paralysis on a mattress in the hold of the 41 boat, stricken with sickness and the gnawing fact he had left all his men. 
He later likened the boat trip to taking a ride in a concrete mixer. About the only two who felt fine were Gene MacArthur on the 41 boat and the air officer, General George, on the 32 boat. The PT boats themselves did not fare much better. Buckley wanted all the boats to make the trip together, but the 20-foot seas, the darkness, and the fact that each one had to stop during the night to fix their overworked engines split them up after midnight. Lieutenant Robert Kelly's PT-34 couldn't keep up due to the carbon buildup in her engines. His passenger, Rear Admiral Rockwell, was getting annoyed. So Kelly rigged the carburetors wide open, and when the engines finally kicked in, it flew past all the others, not to be seen again, until the next afternoon. Rockwell thought he was with a kid who didn't know what he was doing, so he asked Kelly to make a simple distance reading from a fixed point. Kelly held out his thumb and forefinger and said about four miles. It was only then that Rockwell realized none of the boats had navigational equipment. Ensign Anthony Aker's 35 boat had troubles all night, and no one ever saw it again during the journey. Lieutenant Junior Grade Vincent Schumacher's PT-32 met up with Cox's PT-41 the next morning in what almost became a disastrous situation. In the early hours of dawn on March 12th, PT-32 almost blew PT-41 and General MacArthur to smithereens. In the bad light of the morning, Schumacher thought he had a Japanese destroyer on his tail. He couldn't outrun it, so he jettisoned his extra gas drums and planned to attack with torpedoes. One of the passengers, Brigadier General Hugh Casey, MacArthur's engineer officer, said to wait. It was a good thing. The Japanese destroyer was PT-41. Buckley was livid at Schumacher for his error and the loss of fuel. The plan had been to rendezvous on the morning of the 12th at the island of Takawayan in the Cuyos Island Group. After the night's run, however, only the 34 boat made it there. Schumacher and Cox's boats pulled into a secluded cove in the Cuyos after the morning's affair, still a few hours away from Tagawayan. They then made a short daylight run and made the rendezvous with Kelly's PT-34. A debate among MacArthur and the naval officers followed. Should they wait there for the submarine USS permit, which was supposed to arrive for a rendezvous the next day, risking being found by Japanese air or surface craft, or should they go on to Gagayan? Admiral Rockwell was all for going, telling MacArthur the seas would be not as bad. Buckley agreed, but said the seas would be even rougher. MacArthur listened to the Navy men and then made the decision to go. He made a joke to his Chief of Staff, Brigadier General Sutherland. Dick, there's nothing I can do to Rockwell or Buckley, but if the seas are rough tonight, I will boil you in oil. Since Schumacher's boat had pitched all its gas... Buckley ordered its passengers onto PT-41 and PT-34. Buckley then ordered Schumacher to wait for the USS permit and then take PT-32 to the island of Panay. Buckley never heard from Schumacher or the 32 boat again. Not until Buckley got to Australia a month later would he find out that Schumacher and his crew boarded the permit and had it sink the PT-32. Buckley would never forget it. The second night's run was as bad as Buckley predicted. The seas were even rougher than the night before, and again MacArthur was laid out prostrate on the mattress. Two times during the night the small boats crossed the paths of Japanese warships, but only by luck were they never seen. The lack of navigational charts and equipment in seas none of the sailors had ever traversed just added to the tension. Sometime during the middle of the second night, MacArthur's aide, Colonel Huff, was awoken by the voice of General MacArthur. He wanted to talk. Huff said what followed were the two strangest hours of his life. The general spoke slowly, 
in a low tone of the Philippine campaign from its start to his leaving, going over in his mind what had happened, what went wrong, what could have been done differently. Like with Wainwright, he talked about being called Dugout Doug, about what his troops would think of him. Huff said he noticed sadness, but also complete resolve when MacArthur said he would come back. PG-41 and PG-34 arrived at Cagayan early on the morning of March 13th, their mission completed. PT-35 showed up a few hours later with all hands aboard. Buckley and his men had done the impossible. Years later, when Buckley was asked about the escape, he remarked had he been older and wiser when MacArthur asked him about the feasibility of a PT boat escape, he would have told the general it was a crazy idea. Buckley was awarded the Medal of Honor for his service in the Philippines. He and his commanders were all later flown out of Mindanao to Australia and served throughout the rest of the war. When the Philippines surrendered in May 1942, 38 of Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3 sailors became prisoners of war, and 9 died in captivity. 13 men went into the jungles of the islands of Mindanao and Leyte upon surrender, and fought as guerrillas surviving the war. It was only by the courage, capability, and professionalism of the men of Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3 that MacArthur was given another chance to redeem the defeat in the Philippines. MacArthur, his family, and his staff now safely on Mindanao, they waited for two days for B-17 airplanes to arrive from Australia to pick them up. They would forever be sealed together by the experience, and outsiders would call them the Bataan Gang. MacArthur fulfilled his pledge to return to the Philippines in 1944, and went on to great success and victory in World War II. Most of the Bataan gang would all be there on the deck of the USS Missouri three years later, witnessing the surrender of Japan. All that is except for Brigadier General George and the codebreaker, Lieutenant Colonel Schur. George was decapitated by a propeller in an air accident a few months after the escape. Schur was killed in a plane crash over India in 1943. The defenders of the Philippines, however, knew only captivity, horror, and death. Many would never forgive nor forget MacArthur's escape from Corregidor. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.